Oh, I'm fishing. I'm fishing. Okay, who's married here? Who's married? Okay, put your hands down. Who wants to be married? Cameron wants to be married? You want to be married? No, no. No, no. Who, who's not married who wants to be married? Put your hand up. You want to be married? Okay. Anybody else? Yep. You don't want to be married? You don't want to be married? You do want to be, and you want to be married. Listen to this. You want to hear a little testimony? Listen to this. So my wife and I used to do young adults at uh, this big church. Like we had like 250 young adults. So we actually had to move our talk out from the chapel into the sanctuary. The sanctuary held like 4,000 people. There were 4,000 people there. But there was a lot of people there. Because we were doing a series on God's design for sexuality. God's design for sex and sexuality. And, of course, you know, people come out of the woodwork for that kind of stuff. So we had people come in from all over the place, Christians, okay? And then my wife and I, her name is Kalina, by the way, we felt like, you know, we felt like we got a word from the Lord for for this. And so we felt really good about it. And uh, so we went to them on the last session, and we said, you know, we really feel like we just want to release you guys because... Because somebody new would come into the group, right? We called it the weirdness would come over people. So somebody new would come into the group. So this guy would come into the group. And, like, the girls would be going, oh, that's the guy. I've been looking for that guy. He's probably the guy. If it was a girl, the guys would go, oh, that's the girl. So we called it the weirdness. Come over people. So we said, we really feel for just to release you guys to date each other. Like, like the person beside you, or behind you, or in front of you. And of course, everybody just freezes, right? And they're kind of doing this, and there's nervous laughter everywhere. Crazy, right? Crazy. We performed 28 marriages that year. And, and the kids of those marriages, some of them are leaders in our church. There's something to say about that. No, it's not a cult. <clears throat> There is something to say, though, about family and, and the generational and, the, and the, multipl- yeah. the multiplicational effect of kingdom living. There is just something about that that's very, very healthy. As long as it, it doesn't become exclusive, it continues to be inclusive. Now, my first question, though, was who's married? And my question is this, for those of you who are married, <clears throat> what's the mission? Wrong. <laughs> I knew exactly, I knew you were going to, and you know what? It's only men who say that. <clears throat> Subdue it with sons and daughters, or mostly sons. How I many you know it's the male that determines the sex of the child? I didn't know back then. I want four males from you. Bring me a goblet and a head. You know, the guys would like, you know, think they're, think somehow, you know, the lady has to do this. So, married, <clears throat> that is definitely part of the mission. But what's the mission? What's your mission in the marriage? 
Any idea? It ain't sex, probably, because that only happens, what, three times a week, maybe? So if that was really the goal, you'd be going at it for like nine times a week, right? If that was actually the goal, if that was actually, you know, it could be a goal, it could be a goal, but you, have, you both have to be invested in it. Because <laughs> you don't want one person sleeping. Okay, so what's the mission? Oh, dear Lord, you're so spiritual. <laughs> What's the mission? Raise up the kids to do the same. What's your mission for your marriage? What's your personal mission for your marriage? We do this in premarital counseling for you to come up with a mission for your marriage. Because it may not look the same. There's the general mission sure, we're going to have kids, we want to raise up. You know, sons and daughters to become fathers and mothers. That is disciple-making, by the way. You know, it's another way of saying disciple-making is to raise up sons and daughters to become fathers and mothers in the faith, right? For sure. Missions are very, mission is very, very good. Mission is very, very, how do you stay on it, though? That's the thing. So let me ask you a question. What would distract you? What would, what would... What would derail you from this? What would derail you from your personal mission? What, give me examples. What do you think might derail you? Anybody? This is not a test. Yeah, pride. Pride's just so icky, eh? It's like happening all the time. It's probably happening right now. Yeah. What else? What might derail you from your mission? Fatigue, burnout, hardships. What, okay, yeah, distraction. Wrong motives. Not walking in the light. What would distract you from this noble mission? Eh? Enemy, TV, social media, yeah? All right, let's get into this for a little bit, okay? So this is about being mission true, and um, <coughs> talk about mission drift. Go ahead and read that to yourself for a moment. Good job. It's when a person, company, a charity, a church, begin to move away from their original value principles mission, the person, company, charity, and or church gradually becomes irrelevant and ineffective. See, drifting in your mission is not so much not doing what you said you would do, it's that what you're doing has become irrelevant. Big difference. Big difference. Because then that gives you the illusion that you have purpose and that you're doing something, but it's become irrelevant. The Christian church disciples sons and daughters. We don't want to be irrelevant. We want to be relevant. We have a voice in our culture. You have a voice in your circle of influence. And so being mission true is all of those things. However, you consistently manage to find your way back to your true center. Okay? And of course, for us, it's Jesus. 
Um, and then it's the mission. It's believing in your mission. How do you, how do you keep staying true to that center? Take the idea of, of marriage. What's a good idea to stay true to the center in, your, in the mission for your marriage? Very practically speaking. Eh? To be friends with each other. Spend time with each other. Pray together. Date nights. Right? You're stewarding your marriage. You're stewarding love. You're stewarding the relationship. It's very, very healthy. Um, because before you know it, and you've heard this, maybe you might have kids, by the time you're empty nesters, you're looking at each other across the dining room table, and you're going, hmm, who are you? Because you gave yourself to your children more than you did to your spouse. Very, very dangerous. And, um, and I'm just going to put this out there. It's not, you know, um, um, I, I, I don't mean to, well, I'm just going to say it, is that more women tend to do that than men, because women are more nurturing than men. Yes, that's true. It's a, it's a scientific fact, okay? So, so women will tend to pour more into their children than they will into their marriage. Men tend to put more into their hobbies if they're going to put more into something, okay? The Bible says in 2 John 1, 8, watch yourselves that you might not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Watch yourselves that you might not lose. So there is a possibility, without using any kind of a scare tactic here, that it is possible for you to lose your vision. Now, for me, vision is not the biggest thing. I think vision is good. I think you need vision. There's a place for vision. But I think what we need more than vision is clarity. Is clarity. Because you can have a vision, but when you start to lose clarity, when you start to lose a succinct view of what you have originally been called to do and to be, there's going to be a problem in all of that. And the Bible is very clear, and this is one of many scriptures that talks about basically, keep your eyes on the prize. You know? Peter Drucker, he's a famous business person. He has actually has gone into nations and governments and he's just turned them upside down. And he says that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Now I'm a strategist. I love strategy. Cam's a strategy. We love strategists. Uh, strategists will, you know, I drove into this parking lot and immediately I thought, oh, it would be great if this could be there or that could be there. We could have this here, could have this here. Walk in the building, you change things around, you get a fresh look. Some of you guys are like that for sure. It's just, a, it's an apostolic view of how you see things, where things could more effectively work. That's a good thing. But it's culture. Because if you take this, and Cameron knows this, see, if this isn't your culture, it isn't only going to work, you're going to burn people out. Because for our church, for instance, at Freedom Center, my wife said, Rick, you know, this is years ago, she said, why don't we start a soup kitchen? We're in an area where a soup kitchen would be good, and, um, which is basically feeding a bunch of people who, who didn't have the means once a week. And I thought, oh, man, that's going to be a lot of work, man. Like, that is going to be, like, you got to cook. And what if people don't show up? And where's the food going to come from? And 
government regulations. You got this, that, bum, bada, bim, boom, bada, bum. And I said, you know what? Let's let's pray about it. Prayed about it and thought, thought, can our is it our culture? Is it who we are? Now we know that it's biblical. Okay, but we're not all called to that same thing. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. If you're a foot, you're not a hand. And if you're a hand, you're not a bulbous nose. Whatever it is. You know, you got to be comfortable being a bulbous nose. All right? Whatever. So eventually it started happening. And then before you knew it, we knew that the Lord was on it. And people started to embrace it. Because if you try to create a culture out of an event... You're going to burn people out. Your events have to come out of your culture. Do you understand? So I knew a pastor in Toronto who went down to Pensacola, came back to Toronto, spent close to $100,000 to renovate the front part of his sanctuary to look like Brownsville's altar, altar. No kidding. That's a true story. What a knucklehead. Pardon me, but... And it does start with a K, by the way. And I thought, what, like, what are you doing? You, like, what, what, that's classic, trying to, trying to eventize your culture. It's just not going to work. And when we start to do that, see, when, when offers come in, when opportunities come your way, we're quick to say, this is a great opportunity, I'm going to take it. But if, what you got to do is you got to take that opportunity and superimpose it on your culture. And if it doesn't fit, you got to throw it out. The Lord is probably talking to you because it's a good thing, but it may not be relevant for your culture, what God has called you to do. That goes with the business, that goes with the church, and that goes with personally. So when you, when you are actually living in, in the culture, in the kingdom culture that God has called you to, the span of your opportunities actually begins to grow. But what must also grow with that is the wisdom and the discernment and what to say yes and no to. Because answered prayer isn't always God vindicating you but, and saying that you're on the right path. He's, he could be answering your prayer for something else. And we've got to be very, very careful that just because things are always going kind of good and we're starting to get some favor, it doesn't always necessarily mean that we need to follow that answered prayer down that same path. Okay. So culture eats strategy for breakfast. Now, different kinds of, you know, protocols here. It's, there's the God mission that we have. It's mostly vertical. Okay, it's with him. The sonship mission, it's passionately personal. The family mission, it's complicated relational. And the apostolic mission, it's unselfishly ecclesial. It's, it's, it's out there to the called, we're the called out ones. And, and these are happening at any moment in your culture here at New Day. Whether it's Vandalia or whether it's Nichols or whether it's downtown. What's that one called? I'm there tonight. The Vine, Vine, not the Vine, Vine. Right? And whatever else you got, you got coming up. All of this is happening at the same time. And man, we need the wisdom of God. But, but careful here. Do not pray for what wisdom can get you. Pray for wisdom. It's very, very important. And that's when things start to become clear. That's when the clarity starts to happen for any of these. Because these are all important, yes? They're all important. But some of them are more important, not because they're more valuable, but because they're more essential at a particular time. 
That's the same thing with the apostolic. God has called first apostles, then prophets, then teachers, and so on and so on. He's not saying that apostles are more valuable. He's just saying that they're more essential when it comes to governing the church and reaching out. You guys getting this? Okay, let's just define culture so that we're, we're all on the same page here. Culture is the system of beliefs, disciplines, practices, relational boundaries that reveal how life is lived among a particular group of people. It's how we do life together. It's the feel of the atmosphere. It does not happen by accident. Okay? Let me ask you a question. If I was to ask you guys, you know, I'm new in town, and I go, and, you know, hey, you got to come out to our church, and I was to say, well, what's the culture like? You know what you would say? Anything? What do you think you would say? Laid back culture? Family oriented culture? Pardon? Hipster culture? Anybody else? Welcoming culture? Anybody else? Honoring? Prophetic culture? Yeah, all good things, right? All good things. Is there, is there a teaching element? It's, is it really biblically based? Is it a presence culture? All of these things have to do with culture. And then how we communicate these things to one another is also our culture. And for some people that are coming in new, they don't know what that is yet. They don't know the nuances. They don't know all the inside jokes like you do. As we talk from a pulpit to people that are out there, Seeing that they're family, and yet there are people who, are just, who have just come into our family as well. We have to remember that too. So we have, you know, things like prophetic culture. You know, we're learning to supernaturally speak words of life. We're strengthening people, encouraging anyone around us. Um, there's, there's an honor culture, a culture of honor. Uh, we're learning to see others and value them as God does. In our church, um, honor is leaving a person, place, or thing in better condition than we first encountered them. That's our definition of honor. So when, you know, you got a piece of paper here, you got a cup there, I don't walk by that. I pick that up. We don't want to get legalistic and say, you know, you get up at 3 in the morning, the fear of God is in your heart because you walk by this empty cup. Okay, we don't want that. That gets just, that gets spooky and weird. We don't want that at all. So, supernatural culture. There's all these kind of cultures that we want in our church, but... Particularly, let me ask you this question. If there was one thing that defined you, defined your culture, what might that be? Anybody? Don't say passion, buddy. (laughs) Jesus culture. Anybody? Little more difficult to, to, to define, yeah? And, and some of you are afraid to say the wrong thing. You don't have to be. But what do you think maybe? Community? That's what I would say. I would say there's a feeling of community. And then you can break that down with all of the other, you know, culture additives that you want to put in there. But that is a good way to approach how you do things, and how you welcome people in to that community. What are your on-ramps for people to come into your community? What are those on-ramps? 
Because when people come into, into your community, there's something that they identify with right off the bat. So they'll come in, it could be the building, it could be that there's ample parking, it could be that they met somebody at the door, it could be the music, it could be the preaching, it could be the childcare, it could be something. And what gets them coming back would be that initially, but then they make a contribution to the community. They might put some money in the offering. Their personal contribution might be showing up a little early and moving up from the last row into the middle row. There's little contributions that people make along the way. They're starting to have a sense of ownership. They're starting to understand the culture a little bit. They're getting more comfortable with their surroundings or somebody that's, that that's for, they're familiar with. How do you stay true to all this kind of stuff? Intentionality is very important because if you're going to do that, that is going to be one of the most intense. You're going to eat, breathe, and sleep that stuff for a couple of years at least while you are who you are as local church. All right, guess the organization. The original mission, to advance learning and perpetuate it to posterity. Fearing to leave an illiterate ministry when our present ministers shall lie in the dust. Known as the school of the prophets. Each school day began with prayer and devotions often led by the president. Any idea? Harvard. Number two, original mission, the education of gospel ministers and pious school teachers, led by the leading evangelist of the day, active in the abolitionist movement, hmm, sent missionaries throughout the world, first American coeducational college, Oberlin College, whose second president was Charles Finney. See, the real thing about this is that they're not obvious. Isn't that incredible? Founded by a fervent evangelical and high-minded Calvinist. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> One founder said his idea for this organization was a direct inspiration from God. The other founder was guided by the example of the Good Samaritan. Ah. Original mission was to assist the wounded in war. Do you know that they can no longer display that Red Cross in the Middle East? Even if they go in to help and rescue and whatnot? Number four. Original mission, a social organization of those in whom the love of Christ has produced love of men who shall meet the young stranger as he enters the city, taking him by the hand. At one time, one of every six college students, imagine this, attended its Bible studies sent student missionaries throughout the world, invented two Olympic sports. Mm 
Current mission statement of Harvard seeks to identify and to remove restraints on students' full participation so that individuals may explore their capabilities and interests and may develop their full intellectual and human potential. In other words, their passion. <laughs> Education at Harvard should liberate students to explore, create, to challenge, to lead. The support, uh, the support the college provides to students is a foundation upon which self-reliance and habits of lifelong learning are built. Harvard expects that the scholarship and collegiality it fosters in its students would lead them in their later lives to advance knowledge, to promote understanding, and to serve society. Oberlin's to expand students' social awareness, social responsibility, and capacity for moral judgment so as to prepare them for intelligent and useful response to the present and future demands of society. From the Oberlin website, Obies gather in Finney Chapel to hear lectures, concerts, and more concerts. Finney can hold most of the student body and has excellent acoustics. Well, praise the Lord. There's a cutting edge there. Red Cross, a humanitarian organization led by volunteers, will provide relief to victims of disasters and help people prevent, prepare for, and respond to emergencies. At its founding, Red Cross decided it needed government support and should not be a sectarian organization. YMCA, to put Christian principles into practice through programs that build a healthy spirit, mind, and body for all. Local autonomy means that there is great diversity in the way local wives demonstrate their Christian heritage. In other words, there's only a handful of them that uh, use this today. How Christian organizations lose their culture. <clears throat> Financial pressure. Now, in the 70s and 80s, revenue at the YMCA started to decline. I mean, it started really going down. And in their history, the YMCA, you know that they commissioned over 20,000 missionaries throughout the world? They sent them out there and they paid for them. Incredible. And D.L. Moody was one of its primary champions of the YMCA. And what began to happen is that the YMCA started to lose funding. So what did they do? They took money from places who demanded that in YMCA, today anyway, everything has been dropped except for the Y. They were forced to make changes based on financial pressure. And so, you know, I don't think this is above your pay grade. But that here, that here, in a heartbeat can be lost. If you allow financial pressure to shift and change in just degrees the decisions that you're making right now. And in your own life, that's true as well. Because as, as spiritual as it sounds, and I believe with all my heart, Jesus Christ is the source. He just is. He, he just is that source. So financial pressure is, uh, is a big one. Next one is professional priority. What do you think that is? Hmm? 
please me, political games, all that kind of stuff. What this really is, this professional priority, is when structure begins to lead rather than the spirit begins to lead. Is when what you're building, and I don't mean brick and mortar, I mean when this becomes what the Pharisees took from the Torah and created something called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was all of the rules, was all of the traditions of the fathers, and they became more important. As a matter of fact, they put them in little boxes called phylacteries. They tied them around their head. And there came a point in time, and Jesus, who was the new covenant, fulfilling the old, came and said, wait a minute here. You believe more in the Mishnah than you do the Torah. You look through that book looking for me. Looking for your Messiah, and here I am standing right in front of you. You don't see me. So my example is kind of the body. Two-thirds water, one-third structure. And that was actually Paul's example as well as the body. And so it's very important that structure does not lead, that the Holy Spirit must always lead. Um, changing accountability. How long have you been here? 20 years? Yeah, but, but pastoring. <laughs> I've been here for 95 years, you're going to be saying. Lead pastor for how long? Yeah, 20 years. You know what that creates in one word? Stability. <laughs> stability. It creates stability. Stability is a good word. It's not a bad word. It's a great word. Stability is maturity. Maturity means more capacity. More capacity means I hold more. Holding more means I have more to give away. We want stability. That's very important. What do you want in your children? You want stability, man. You want stability. So it's very, this whole thing is, is changing accountability. Leaders always changing, shifting. Um, I'm covering this tomorrow, I think, with the students. I'm going to be talking about the fivefold and the apostolic. But, but the average tenure for a senior pastor is like three to five years now. It's crazy. Barna research, Barna did research poll, and, and 25% of clergy said that they would leave their churches if it wasn't for getting paid. And that's, that's the one that's told, those are the ones that told the truth. 25, it's probably like 35% when you think about it. Very unstable. When there's five fathers in the family, mm, mm -mm. just keep changing, just keep changing, just keep changing. Okay? Choosing the wrong enemies. What could be a wrong enemy that you might choose in the church? As a, as a church, as a church, pro, as a church body, governmental, the polity of the church, what, what might be a wrong enemy? No. Anybody else? Good guess, though. <clears throat> hey? Sure. It could be the other churches in town. It could be technology. Politics. <laughs> Millennials. There, there are churches, there are churches and, and leaders who are just, I hear them railing against millennials. It makes me sick to hear it. 
There are things about them I don't like, but there's more, there's so much potential there. It's absolutely stunning to, to, to be able to see that. So don't choose the wrong enemy. Don't fight something that God has already sanctioned and said, go ahead. You may not understand it all, but I'm on it and I'm in it. Um, don't fight multi-generational ministry. Don't fight not handing this to the next generation. And, of course, Cameron's very big on that. By the way, Cameron, they love you guys. They love you. They just love you guys, man. And he's very lovable, too, isn't he? Yeah? We've been friends a long time, man, and, and I have so much respect, so much respect for Cameron and, and for Kathy and, and just what you guys, just who they are, never mind what they've done, just who they are as people. And I'm, I'm just... I'm privileged to be a friend. It's fantastic. You owe me 20 bucks. <laughs> Making the wrong friends. There are churches who are trying to kind of create different streams of income for themselves, which is good. I think that's creative. I think it's a God thing. But you really got to be careful because they're parceling off land or renting land, or the premises, opening it up, and what's happening is that their culture is starting to get diluted because the values and the morals aren't aligned with the church's values and morals. So what can begin to happen is that if you start selling off portions of your building or renting to people, the 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 laws are so very clear, it's very difficult to get rid of somebody that you started renting to, whether it's a home or whether it's a church or whether it's a warehouse or something like that. Um, there was a church um, in my city that financially aligned itself with a company, and they seemed to have the same vision at the very beginning, but it became a disaster. And you know what the vision was? The, one, the company wanted to open up um, a gym, and this church had a gymnatorium, for, uh, that's what they called it, and then they started bringing Eastern meditation in and other things in, and then, of course, the people in the church started complaining, and they started complaining, said, well, I'm not going to be in that building, I'm going to leave the church, so making the wrong friends, very, very, now this to me is one of the most important ones, spiritual compartmentalization. So, other, otherwise known as silo ministries, okay? Any idea what a silo ministry might be? Guess? Eh? What, what could happen in a silo ministry? What's, what's, what's a thing that could cause it to go sideways? Any idea? Yeah, yeah. Sure, sure, or a small group. Um, in most local churches, the danger of silo ministries, which is cutting yourself off from the rest of the body of Christ, you're becoming now a voice for the people apart from the leadership. You're actually even creating time and space for people to come and meet with you, okay? And here's what happens most of the time, men's ministry and prophetic ministry, 
So it's very important that the apostolic leader and the prophetic leader and any of the leaders like this, that there is a relationship of mutual submission based in trust with the lead person getting the last word. Very, very important there. So in our marriage, for instance, um, I get the last word. But wait a minute. I don't remember the last time I ever had to use that. I can't remember the last time I ever had to veto my wife. It's the same thing with our leadership, with our board. I, I get the last word, but I don't remember the last time I ever had to say, well, I'm the leader here, so we're going to do it this way. I think if you have to assert your authority that way, you've probably lost it. You've created something there that maybe isn't, isn't healthy. So this, this compartmentalization, we really got to be careful about that. It's destroyed some churches. And how do I know that? Because I get to go in after and, and called in, and I get to try to make something out of this thing. Um, I was in a church two years ago where the entire board resigned and started a church in the same city. The board of the church. The board, the spiritual covering of that church. Praise the Lord. What a family. Um, Other things, very simply, losing fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Oh, we don't want that. Listen, I love conferences, okay? I love the fire, all right? But I, listen, when I sit down with my wife, every time I sit down with my wife, I don't want to jump on her every moment. Yeah, really. <laughs> really. Because I know it's not, it wouldn't be honoring to her. Really. I want to have conversation because I know she wants to have conversation. See, I value it because she values it. I don't value... This gets better. Where are you going? <laughs> I, don't, I don't value going to the mall and looking at shiny things. Okay? But she values it. And because she values it, I value it. It's the same thing in your relationship with the Holy Spirit. Find your way back to the Father by the end of the day. Listen, that's my mission every day. That's my mission. Because things are going to happen in the day, but by the end of the day, find yourself back going back to the Father, sitting in his lap, because that's, that's where perspective comes from. That's where clarity comes from. And you know when you do that, you know what he does? He said, by the way, by the way, do you remember this? Do you remember how passionate you were for that? Do you remember how passionate you were for that? Do you remember how passionate you were for me? Don't lose fellowship with the Holy Spirit, okay? Um, Don't resist raising up sons and daughters. So, so I would challenge you this. I'm, I'm going to ask you this question. And I don't say it to your chagrin or embarrassment or anything, but let me ask you this question. Who are you discipling right now? Who are you personally discipling as you're being discipling? So maybe find that person to champion. Who are you championing? Is there somebody championing you? Are you open enough for somebody to champion you? And who are you championing? Who are you running beside? Who are you speaking into? Who's calling you out? You know, does it always have to be the senior, senior guy doing that? 
who's doing that for you. And, um, you know, keep, keep submitting to healthy change. Keep, even if you're not comfortable with it, you know, keep doing it. And I, I sense in this room, you know, that you guys are, you guys are doing a lot of this kind of stuff, and, and I think that's great. Um, careful of cynicism. Cynicism is the death gargle of a Christian. Cynicism. Don't let cynicism get in. You've got to talk stuff out, man. You've got to talk stuff out. Because if you don't start talking with somebody that's starting to, you know, you're getting a bad, bad vibe or you're getting frustrated, if you're not talking to them, you're going to start talking about them. And that will be to your chagrin. So be careful of cynicism. You know, it's, it's, it, can, it can creep in and it's an, it's an unwelcome Unwelcome thing for sure. Um, how is culture lost? Harvard graduate reflecting on the school's original mission statement. If you want to show that with 180 small misdirections of one degree each, you're going backwards, this statement should help. Understand? Understand? <clears throat> you know how you turn around? It's never a full 180. It's 181 degree choices. Before you know it, you're turned around and you're lost. And for some people, shipwreck. It's never just a blowout like a tire. It's usually a small leak. And it starts small. And sometimes that change is six degrees. Maybe it's nine degrees. Maybe it's part of the testimony. Do you remember when David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem? The journey. Do you remember that journey? What did that journey look like? Do you remember what he had to do? Remember what he had to do? Don't whisper really out loud. Remember what he had to do? Anybody? They had to go for a little time. And then what did they do? They had to stop and do what? Sacrifice worship. And they went along, stop, sacrifice worship. Destination was Jerusalem. Okay? But along the way, along that journey, were these things that had to happen. Now, is it possible to praise God when only 30% of the testimony is accomplished? Is it possible to, to see the big picture or is it possible only to appreciate the 30% even though you don't see the mystery and the rest of the 70%? Is it possible to live in that kind of mystery? And how do I posture my heart through it? Do I get cynical? Do I point my finger at God? Do I say curse God and die? When only 10% of the testimony is accomplished. So we may sit here and look at a poster where we want to build a bigger building or look at this over here and, and you know, where are we in this? Are we 10%, 5%, 80%, 90%? You could celebrate the moment that you're in right now, just like David did. The moment that you're in. Listen, you have everything you need to do what God has called you to do right now. You got it in spades. You do. It's just the way it is.
Vision is rarely lost in one big decision, but in hundreds of small ones that compound each other and change our direction. It's like the frog in the water. You put him in a boiling water, he's going to jump out, goes into cold water, turn that heat up slowly. What he's going to do? He's going to boil to death. Stupid frog. He'll boil to death. Same thing with, the, with your marriage. Married people. Steward the flame. You sex deranged maniac. I don't think I've ever said that from the pulpit. That's cool. I like it. They're going, yes, yes. Okay, my 2019 mission was to consistently find my way back to the Father. That was a personal kind of thing. Um, I've got mine for 2020, but I wasn't going to share those. But this is, this is what, for, for, you know, 2019 for myself. Create a business group with um, Freedom Center comprised of business owners and entrepreneurs. We've done that. Um, it's fantastic. We got, a, we, got, we, we, got, uh, we got high-end, high-end, not early adopters, but developers. Like the early adopters are those people that will stand in line, you know, at, outside of Apple for three days to get the next new thing. But then you've, you've, got the, you've got the developers, man, like the, 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 guy, the people that come up with it. And then you've got your early adopters, and then you've got your core, and then you've got your kind of extra grace-required people in your church. Those are the EGRs, okay? And, you know, they're special, you know? And you've got to be very careful. So I spend 80% of my time with 20% of our people. So I'm going now a little bit to kind of a five-fold uh, mini little thing here, but that's what I do as the apostolic leader. I have a pastor who pastors people. That's all he does. He loves doing it. He doesn't want to take over the church. He doesn't have a vision for the church, but he's actually the pastor of the church. His name is Michael Pelkman. He does an excellent job. He goes to the hospital. He visits people. He does marriage counseling, uh, sozo stuff. He develops a team. He's developed a team of over 20 uh, People that are in his pastoral pod. These are people that are called and being developed to pastor people. We have pew pastors who watch out for new people in each section of the church. And that sounds also structural, but the structure doesn't lead. The heart must lead. The heart and the passion must lead. This is what has to lead. Very, very important for that. And so, you know, being entrepreneurial, okay, I'm not going to go there. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. If you want to know more, come to the school tomorrow, if you're allowed. Um, increase the number of families attending Freedom Center by 15. We hit 12 families in 2019. Uh, it all sounds so businesslike, right? Liquidate the remaining 50K on our mortgage to be mortgage-free. Did that. Grow our volunteer base at Freedom Center by 20. Increase it to almost 30. Uh, Okay, these are all the successes. I could tell you all the, the junk ones that are laying away somewhere. For every good thing you're doing, there's 10 that you failed at, just so you know. Uh, launch a young adult church plant in Milton. We did that. It's called The Collective. They meet Sunday nights. It's going fantastic. Honest, it is. Uh, create a greater awareness of missions at Freedom Center. We're doing that. And all these, of course, have sub-goals and, and, and timelines and all that kind of stuff. Meet and relate more often with Oakville and Milton pastors. Mm, not going so well. 
Um, you know, they've been entrenched for a long time, I think, and find it hard to kind of step out and make new relationships. Understand and incorporate my role in Harvest Alliance. And that's starting to happen, too. So these are things that you could do personally. These are things that you could do as individual campuses. Like with Harvest Alliance, what we're doing right now is you have Harvest Alliance Europe, U.S., Canada. You have Harvest Alliance International. But each country is developing its kind of strategy for its country. You could also do that for your particular churches as well because the demographic might be the same in each community. Man, church planting around here would be incredible. Just incredible. It's doable here. You can actually take a region. You can actually take a region. It's, it's great. I love it. Okay, now what? You're going, to be doing that in a, you're going to be doing this in a few minutes. What are the three healthy non-negotiables for your church moving forward? What do you think those might be? So, <clears throat> where's Nichols? Uh, no, in the room, sorry. Yeah, okay, Nichols. Put your hand down. Where is this church, Vendelia? Yeah. And where is Vine? Just you. Okay. Let's start with you, Anthony. Think, so think in your head. Three non-negotiables that are like, like this is actually doable for your church moving forward in 2020. What could that look like? Who's leading this place? Yes, non-negotiable goals, um, non-negotiable values, non-negotiable elements in the culture. Yes, goals, thank you. Uh, Vendelia, put your hand up. What would be three? Not ten, not four, three. What might be two? Because sometimes... We have to do what we're really good at and not what we want to be really good at and, and focus on that. And what happens with that? The problem there is when we compare ourselves. You know, you're not Bethel. You know, you're not. And I met all these leaders. I got to host Bill, Bill and Benny for a couple of weeks. My wife and I did that. And what's his name in Australia? Um, Hillsong. Uh, yeah, Brian Houston. Oh, wait a minute. I'm just picking up that name because I dropped it. <coughs> Hosted it. These are great people. I'm not them. Took me a while to be okay with that. Took me a while to be okay with that because of my, you know, what were my own insecurities, you know? And for Vine, where's Vine? Oh, yeah, yeah. A whole, what's left? Nichols, Nichols. What about Nichols? What's one or two non-negotiables? And so the other question is, what exactly are you doing to move them forward? That's the other question. And the other question is, what exactly would happen if you drifted from those? What exactly would happen if you stayed mission true to those things? What would happen? This is very practical, very applicable, very doable as well. And they don't have to be three, you know, hear people about outrageous goals. You know where they're outrageous? Because they're outrageous. You know, 
And I'm into that. I know what I would do with $100 million that was given to me. I've got a plan for $100 million. I've got a plan for $10 million, and I've got a plan for a million. It's there. I know exactly what would happen if I got that kind of money. I think we need to be ready for that stuff, absolutely. But I'm not going to make decisions now based on what I don't have. I'm going I'm to make decisions now based on what God has provided me, the daily bread, and should this happen to me, yeah, I got a pretty good idea what I would do, but I'm not living there. I'm not living there. Because when we compare ourselves to each other, actually Paul says, y'all not to compare yourselves one to another, measuring yourselves by yourselves. It's just an empty thing, man. There's always going to be somebody that's going to do it better than you. Trust me. There is. There just is. Okay, so in conclusion which is just a meaningless term that preachers use. I'll give you a little example of something about thinking like <clears throat> thinking like the person that is imbued with God's identity, that is imbued with elegance, nobility, vision, the ability to impart the ability to see something change in real time, okay? And I tell you, a lot of it has to do with the mind. Now, I have a biblical framework for this, so I'm going to throw it out there before we end, and it's simply this, that in the Bible, and I'm, don't ask to come up to explain it to, me, to, uh, to you because it, it would take too much time, but it's in there, in the Bible. I believe and I see that the mind trumps the heart. that the mind can take you to places that the heart cannot take you or may not want to go. Why do I say that? Partly is because this, because we have the mind of Christ, which means we can live in perfect sanity. I believe we can be sane people. I do. Okay? This is stretch, brother. But we could... We, we can. It's, it's there. The cross has provided for that. The, it, more so, the resurrection has provided for that. See, if, if you're living between the cross and the resurrection, you're only going to get half the benefits. See, when you're living on the other side of the resurrection, when you're looking at the cross through the resurrection, that's where the magic happens. Can you imagine for a moment if you spent more time or the same time gazing at the empty tomb than you did at the cross? What could happen? You know what that's called? Joy. Joy. Now, being Italian, you ever been to an Italian funeral? Oh, my gosh. It's like a screaming contest. You know? And then the poor widows, they wear black for the next 30 years. What are they doing? They're stewarding death. They're stewarding a bad memory. Not stewarding the person. They're stewarding the event. We're not called to just steward the cross. And I'm a cross man. Trust me, I am a cross man. I love the cross, man. But, oh, the, 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 the resurrection. Man, the resurrection. Woo! Jesus talks about the resurrection a lot. Paul talks about the resurrection more than the cross, hands down. Not to say one is more important than the other, but one is more essential in New Covenant theology and how we look at our lives and even how we look at God. Does anybody know who Arnold Palmer is? He does. 
He does. It's hard drink, isn't it? And uh, he was, you know, arguably one of the best golfers in the world. And I, I enjoy golf. I love golf. Um, I love being there. I love being on that course for five hours. Like, Jesus is my caddy. And, and he's there with me. And it's just every bit of spiritual to me is being in church. Except I don't do it Sunday morning. Because I have my priorities. So, Arnold Palmer was asked to go to Dubai to host a golfing event because Dubai wanted to, the Sheikh of Dubai, uh, wanted to be able to promote golf in, in the region. And so Arnold Palmer went to Dubai, and uh, when the event was over, the Sheikh of Dubai wanted to do a media kind of opportunity, and so he asked Arnold Palmer to uh, be interviewed in the, in the uh, foyer of the, of the hotel, big five-star hotel, of course. And Arnold Palmer was, pl- was pleased to do that. So he went down. There were cameras there. The sheikh came. There was an interpreter. And the sheikh th- said through the interpreter, you know, Mr. Palmer, I'd like to get you a gift. And Arnold Palmer said, you know, you don't really have to get me a gift. It's okay. And the interpreter didn't even look back at the sheikh. He just thought, you know, you probably should take some kind of a gift. And Arnold Palmer said, okay. Uh, a golf club that would that would really I would love a golf club that that'd be a good memory. Sheikh was very very pleased with that. Very pleased, as a matter of fact. Arnold Palmer is packing up his stuff. He hears a knock on the door. There's a messenger that hands him an envelope. He opens up the envelope. Arnold Palmer does. And you know what's in it? A deed for a golf club. A golf and country club. A whole one. Why? Because the sheikh of Dubai was thinking like royalty. See, the gift was relative to how he thought in an honoring way. Because the gift was relative to what he knew he could provide. And when we look at the mission, we could look at all this stuff as I do we need it all. We, we, Cameron's put it all in there. Passion for Jesus, everything. Okay? Your part in that mission is number one. You ready? I believe in the mission. That's the first thing. Like, that is the first thing. I believe in the mission. So if you don't believe in the mission, it's not going to happen. I believe in the mission. I want to be part of the mission. And I want to give the mission away. Those three parts. See? But if you don't have it, how do you give it? You know, if you're not thinking as in, in yourself, as yourself, in Christ, with elegance, with nobility, with the ability to be able to impart dignity to other people. <clears throat> we have five minutes? Is this true? Um, let's put our stuff away just for, just for a minute. Put your stuff away. Put all your notes away, your devices, so on and so on. And let's just listen to Holy Spirit for a moment.
Yeah, let's just rest for a moment. Thank you, Holy Spirit. I know it's coming to the end of the day here. See, Jesus is the mission. That's the mission. Making much of him. But here's the rub. <clears throat> you got to let him make much of you. Because your payoff isn't going to be through your ministry. Your payoff isn't going to be being part of a team or part of a church, or part of a cause, or even part of a mission. It's going to be an understanding that you are adored by him. Everything starts there. See, the greatest act of worship is not singing, or dancing, or songwriting, or flagging. It sure isn't the tambourine. The greatest act of worship is to accept that you're accepted. That's the, great, that's, the, that's the best you can bring to him. You can't bring anything else. Is to say yes to your life. That's the greatest act of worship. To say yes to what Jesus died for. That's the greatest act of worship. And it's out of that place that mission is born. Healthy mission. And staying true to that mission. Whatever you're called to do, other than that, is always found in remembering the original mission. So Lord, we ask you that you would put it in our hearts. Lord, as your word says, that you would write it on the tables of our heart, Lord. That your words would be written on the tablet of our hearts, Lord. We accept the mission. We accept the mission of sonship, of daughtership. We accept the mission of our local church. We accept the mission of everything else that comes in the great commission. We say yes. And we're ready, just, when you're ready, just say, just say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. In Jesus' name, yeah, amen. Guys, thanks for listening. Thanks for just, just thanks for being here and listening, and it's a lot of stuff and absorbing stuff and, you guys are really awesome. I mean that. So thank you, and um, see you on the other side. <laughs>